Thank you for listening to NSL Double Talk. Never stop learning. At Never Stop Learning, we connect you with engaging experts who join you and your friends or colleagues in conversation at a location of your choosing. With NSL Double Talk, we are bringing the Never Stop Learning model directly to you. Each podcast will feature two experts in conversation on topics that range from global affairs to wellness to arts to innovation. Sometimes the experts agree, sometimes they don't, but we will never stop learning and never stop laughing. Okay. Okay. <laughs> NSL Double Talk featuring doctors Kat Cohen and Jody Gold. Their topic today is de-stressing the very stressful college application process. Dr. Kat Cohen is the founder and CEO of Ivy Wise, a comprehensive educational consulting company with expertise in university admissions, counseling, tutoring, and test prep. Kat is the best-selling author of The Truth About Getting In and Rock Hard Apps, and is a sought-after speaker and expert on university admissions. Kat holds a BA from Brown University and received two master's degrees and a PhD from Yale. Jody Gold is a pediatric and adult psychiatrist who is on the faculty of Cornell and the founder director of the Gold Center for Mind, Health, and Wellness. She received her BA from the University of Pennsylvania and completed her fellowship in pediatric psychiatry at Cornell. Jody's most recent book, Screen Smart Parenting, How to Find Balance and Benefit in Your Child's Use of Social Media, Apps, and Digital Devices, received an outstanding book award prize from the National Academy of Nursing. We are so excited to welcome Drs. Kat Cohen and Jody Gold to NSL Double Talk. Hi, Jody. It's so great to see you. Welcome. Hi, Kat. It's great to be with you today. We are talking about anxiety around the application process. When do you think this whole application process should start? Well, the process really begins at the beginning of ninth grade because colleges are looking for everything from ninth grade on that will be on your record. And so it's really important for students to be aware when they enter high school what their plan is, how they can plan out those four years so it won't be so stressful, so they know what's coming up. I could not agree with you more. I have to tell you that as a child and adolescent psychiatrist, unfortunately, I could fill my entire practice with kids from January of their junior year until December of their senior year, my entire practice. And I think that's really because everyone waits too long and they wait till January of junior year and then, oh no, I have to like organize my entire life and I have to get into college. But I do think it causes a lot of anxiety. And just to be clear, anxiety is a huge epidemic in our country, especially among young people. There is approximately 40 million people who suffer from anxiety. And what's so striking is, is that almost 75% of them are identified as having anxiety disorders before they're 22 or 23. Mm. So really at this time, between 16 and 22, is when we're seeing the most sort of uh, diagnoses and the most sort of symptoms of anxiety. Most high schools don't start college counseling until spring of junior year, which I think is way too late. There are very few high schools in the country that do what's called holistic counseling that starts much earlier. So I think the anxiety comes up because all of a sudden they hear about SAT subject tests and they have to start studying for the SAT or ACT and start looking at colleges, but it's really quite late in their high school experience. When you see how anxious they are, how do you treat those students? Like, what is your approach? 
Well, my approach obviously is to get them to take a step back. I do a lot of work with the families because as we all understand, part of what's so stressful about the college application process is what parents and grandparents bring to the process. I sit down with the parents and the teenager and help them to understand that this is a process and that what we're hoping is that it's going to be a growing and learning process, not just a horrible anxiety provoking process. So I start with the parents and then sit down and work with the kids. I agree with you. If I can get them in ninth grade, I much prefer it. We are talking about, to your point, like how to take control of high school and how to make it your own and how to find something that you're engaged in and how to get involved with something. And also how to understand that not every single little grade means that you're not getting into college. Exactly. Do you think that school counselors are prepared to deal with this anxiety and this stress? School-based college counselors? Of course, some absolutely are. In general, I don't think so because I think this whole model of having your first meeting with your college counselor in January of 11th grade is way too late. I would like to train college counselors to start this process in ninth grade. It begins with like, who are you? What do you want your high school experience to be like? What are your goals? You're not a done person in ninth grade, right? But the question is, are you interested in sports? Are you interested in science? Should we be cultivating that? And trying to do it in an authentic way 10 to 15 years ago, colleges were looking for probably more, quote unquote, well-rounded students. And today, we say those students, you know, don't stand out in the college admissions process if they're looking at selective colleges. Of course, there's thousands of colleges in this country, so you can still be bright and well-rounded and have colleges to attend, good colleges. But if you're looking at the most selective schools, colleges are looking not necessarily for well-rounded students, but they're looking to create a well-rounded student body made up of angular students or what we call more pointy students. So it's very important for students in ninth grade to really know themselves and figure out, okay, what do I like? What's important to me? How can I make an impact in my high school and the community in which I live or my greater community through these interests? I think you call them passions. They can be both academic and they can be extracurricular as well, or they can be some combination of the two. So it was important for students, I think, to be honest with themselves and figure out, okay, what is it that I like to do? What is it that I care about? And I think when you said when parents come in and they say, well, you need to play sports and you need to play an instrument and you need to do this and you need to do that in order to get into a good college or you have to join five clubs. No, you don't. You don't have to have 15 things on your resume and um, you don't have to do a sport. You don't have to play an instrument. I think there's all these myths out there about what you quote unquote have to do to get into a selective university. But as you said, you have to be true to yourself. I'll often say to students, if I were to take you out of your high school community today, what's missing? And I think kids forget about that in the process and they're thinking about this end goal and they're thinking about what do I need to do to pad my resume to get there? And that's just simply the wrong approach and that can create that anxiety. In fairness, it is not so easy for 14-year-olds and 15-year-olds to identify their interests. They don't know what they like. They feel anxious. They feel pressured. There's a big transition to high school. What I would love to see, but I don't see that it's out there, I would like to see like a whole curriculum for ninth graders on really being thoughtful about what are your interests, what would you like to pursue, how do we rein back all these extracurricular activities that nobody cares about and that just feel like chores? And how do we try to cultivate your interests? What I say to students, it's kind of that Malcolm Gladwell approach that if you had to spend thousands of hours doing something, what would you do? 
And it's a great question. And every single ninth grader can answer it, by the way. Like I haven't come across a ninth grader who can't answer that question. They know what they like to do or what they like to read about or what do they look up on the internet or what do they spend their free time doing or thinking about when they're not doing schoolwork or not doing other things. I was just speaking to a ninth grader randomly this weekend who, again, her mother said to me, oh, you know, she doesn't know what she likes. She doesn't know what she wants. And I just started asking her questions. I said, you know, what TV show do you watch? All these kids watch some TV show. And she said, I'm obsessed with Grey's Anatomy. I really love this whole medical world. And she also happens to be great at math and science. And she said, you know, I think I want to be a doctor. And it was interesting. It was just this little conversation about the TV she watches. And she's a ninth grader. And so we thought about some things that she could be doing to go more in depth in that direction. Now, she could always change her mind in a year or two years, but this is where she is today. And so it's about figuring out, okay, what can she do with that? And she's spending a lot of time playing JV uh, volleyball, which is just a huge time sucker for her where she could use that time. And she's like, yeah, it's okay. I like it. It's not a passion. So I redirected her and figured out, okay, well, how can you use this time and also watch a little bit less TV (laughs) (laughs) and focus more on the medical stuff? I agree with you. I think it should definitely start earlier. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think that's a great example. I, what I'd love is for every ninth grader who starts high school to sit down with their guidance counselor or just in a, in a ninth grade program and really make a list of what they're interested in. And I wish we would get rid of a lot of the sports. I mean, I'm an athlete and I played college uh, sports. However, it is a huge time commitment. And I feel like there's a lot of pressure for kids that sucks away from doing other things. So I think you need to be really honest with yourself with these with the sports particularly. Is if it's something you love and you're good at, of course you should do it. But if you don't love it or you're not good at it, then maybe there's some other way to use your time. Exactly. And I also tell parents about the sports because I always get the question, well, what if he or she, you know, becomes recruitable? First of all, it's so difficult to get to that level of to be recruitable in a sport at colleges. So you have to work at it you know, day in and day out and through the summers. And there are people who are, get to that level of expertise, but even the kids who are recruits, there's always the potential for injury. And a lot of times they don't think about this. They don't have a plan B. I saw this happen. We had a student who was the number one soccer recruit in the country. And then she got into a car accident and she broke one of her legs in in eight places and literally was hospitalized for like nine months with her leg up. And she was not going to be playing you know, soccer in college. Luckily, she had been working with us since ninth grade and she had a plan B. Um, so she had some academic interests that she went into quite deeply into philosophy. And she did some extra papers and read this whole philosophy curriculum, which she wouldn't have read in high school from her hospital bed. Um, and she ended up doing just fine. But I think kids need to think about that when, especially the sports kids. But I wanted to ask you a question about the role of physical health and how that plays into mental health of teenagers. What we don't talk about when we're talking about the college process is mental health. We don't talk about regulation. We don't talk about taking care of ourselves. And it's actually very hard to do. I feel like we all graduate really quite prepared for college academically, but our kids prepared for life in terms of sleep and nutrition and Mm self-regulation and independence. So those are the kinds of things that I would love for kids to start working on in ninth grade. 
in my fantasy curriculum where we're going to talk about <laughs> passions and interests and begin this process in ninth grade, part of that curriculum would also include an alarm clock and a power bar and water because what I would love to do is help kids to learn to sleep. We all worry about our kids not getting enough sleep, but this is one of the big issues that takes a toll on stress and anxiety and on the application process. How do you manage that with a high school kid who has a cell phone and every device and an electronic thing available to them? And you might have gone to bed as a parent, right? Because you fall asleep at a certain time and you have to get up for work. How do you manage that? How do you know what you're child is doing in their bedroom after, you know, a certain hour or whatever the bedtime is that you set. So depending on how old your child is, you do need to come up with a bedtime. Kids need a bedtime. Sleep hygiene 101 is that you need to go to bed at approximately the same time every night and get up at approximately the same time during the day. Um, The weekends you can get up a little bit later, but not a lot more. Kids get that. Um, And with teenagers, it is late because of the demand. So it could be 11 o'clock or 1130. You need a bedtime that you and your, your teenager decide on. The phone needs to sleep outside of the room. As mm-hmm. a grown-ups, they shouldn't sleep in our room. Right. It shouldn't be the last thing you touch at night. shouldn't be the first thing you touch in the morning. The, the phone actually needs to sleep in another room. So that's the first thing your teenager needs to understand. That needs just to be a hard and fast rule. But it could be a rule. But, you know, I find even with kids much younger than high school age kids, do you take it away? Do you lock it up for the night? Like, what do you do? Because they're big kids. They can get up and find find where the phone is and get back on it. So what do you do with that? Well, this is at the key of um, self-regulation. So this is exactly what we're trying to teach during the admissions process. And it's exactly what we're trying to prepare kids for college and for life. And that's how to self-regulate. Because the truth is, as a parent, your kids can always get around you in terms of the devices. That's just a basic rule. So don't actually think that you can outwit your 12-year-old, your 16-year-old, your 18-year-old. You absolutely can't. Having said that, you can help them to self-regulate. So ways to help them to self-regulate is to tell them at 11 o'clock at night, they have to come into your room, whether you're asleep or not, and put their, their phone next to your bed. If, you, if they continue to not do that, then I would recommend going on screen time on your phone. Everybody who has an iPhone now has a setting called screen time on it. And if you just go to settings and go to screen time, you can push it and you can set for their phone to turn off. Now, let me be clear. If they want to get online, they can get on their computer, they can get on their iPad, they can always get around it. But a lot of times, teenagers are really still looking for guidance. The way we look at adolescence is as a big yo-yo, like one moment they don't need you and the next moment they need you a lot. So they are looking for limits. So I do think that most teenagers want some help in setting limits. And I think whatever you can do as a parent to protect their sleep is huge. And then the goal is ultimately they have to manage their own sleep, which is why I think they should have an alarm clock that it's not attached to their phone. I think you should go to Duane Reed or CVS and buy a $4 alarm clock. This is one of the pieces that we're trying to do in helping them manage their health in terms of sleep. And then, of course, there's all the other pieces that we don't really talk about because we're so busy talking about college, right? So we don't talk about nutrition. We don't always talk about exercise. Um, One of the best treatments for anxiety is exercise. So if you have a teenager who's not playing all these sports and is very anxious and studying, you need to make sure that they're exercising. Um, There are studies now that show that um, people who exercise 20 minutes plus a day for three or four times a week need lower doses of antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications and eventually may even not need to be on them because they're exercising. So in terms of thinking about how to take care of kids through the admissions process and beyond, we have to protect their sleep. We have to get them to exercise. We need them to eat. I mean, I was at a high school recently touring with my son, and I was shocked by the Starbucks machines. Or not the Starbucks, the the coffee machines that were everywhere with the Starbucks shots. 
Um, I was surprised at the amount of caffeine that was handed out in high school. So being mindful of how much coffee your kids are drinking versus what they're actually eating, all of these things are critical to the application process and critical to growing up. Because even if your child gets into the, the college of their choice, if they go and they don't know how to sleep and they don't know how to eat and they don't know how to manage their time, they don't succeed in college. Absolutely right. Maybe we should talk a little bit specifically about the application process. What are the anxieties that you see specifically around applying to college? You know, we're counselors. So I think it's very important to give students and parents as much information as possible. Our goal is really just to lay it out so each step is doable. We will have students start looking at colleges in like a no-pressure way spring of sophomore year. I think research is one of the key elements in this process. The more you know about a school, why it's the right fit for you, why it should be on your list, you've been to visit the school, you understand what the culture is like, what the ethos is like, how you'd fit in, what you want to study there, that's key. And that research, that's actually one of, something that we help students with. We will actually research each college and tailor it to the student. But they can also do this themselves. And the earlier they start researching, you know, whether it's going to the school site or even following them on social media. I mean, here's a positive use of social media because schools are on social media and schools have blogs and they have students blogging or dean of admission blogging. You can follow a school and learn so much about it. If they put together a great list at the end and they're really smart about the process and they have a balanced list of 10 to 15 schools, some reach schools, some target schools, some likely schools, and they're all great fits for that student. Um, What we also do to uh, reduce anxiety is make sure that students and parents are not too focused on any one school. The idea is that you have 10 to 15 first choice schools where you'd be happy at any one of them. And it doesn't really matter the selectivity of the school or where it is on some list or U.S. news. It really matters how great of a fit it is for you. So our job as counselors is to make sure our kids have the best list put together at the end of the day where they will be successful and happy at all those schools, even if they're applying early. And most of our students do use some early strategy in the process because that will give them an advantage on getting in. The more knowledge you have, the less anxious you're going to be. You're not going to have your list in ninth or 10th grade, but knowing how to approach high school early enough and breaking it down into all of its little pieces and knowing, okay, Figuring out, as as you were saying, what are my interests early on? How do I discover what those interests are? It might mean dabbling and trying a few things out in ninth grade. And we also give students reading lists and lists of online courses that they can audit to really figure out, hey, what's popping up for me in terms of my interests? And then how you pursue them, figuring out what that plan is through high school slowly really makes the process amazing. And then the other thing for the students to decrease anxiety, it's actually starting their applications early. I would say most kids in the U.S. and abroad will start their applications in the fall of senior year. But the applications come out August 1st before senior year in the summertime. The earlier you start on those, that's key because then they can go back to senior year and just be seniors. They can focus on their academics. They can focus on their activities. They can hand their applications into their high school college counselor and the counselor is going to be like happy that these applications are ready and done and, and very impressed by the student. A lot of what I see when kids get really stressed is that they're cramming. They're trying to do everything at the last minute. And that is just the wrong way to go about this process. So spacing it out, I think, is key. 
I agree with you. I think that the big take-home message here is to be transparent about this process and the fact that it needs to start in ninth grade. I think there's a trend in this country that colleges feel they can decrease the stress on their high school students by not saying the big C word, college, or the SAT word until you're in 11th grade. I think that was initially done in an effort to not overemphasize the college process. What I think it's resulted in is a whole epidemic of college-related anxiety because the kids know about it and they're thinking about it, but they're only allowed to meet with their college counselor in January of 11th grade. So my recommendation for the whole public school system and private school system is, is that you meet with a college counselor at the fall of ninth grade to start this four-year journey that you're on, and that the journey has a lot to do with building confidence, a lot to do with finding a strength and an interest. I feel very strongly that in life you have to encourage kids to play to their strengths. It's not the same mentality as giving everybody a trophy, which I love in middle school. In middle school, I believe everybody should get the trophy. And then I think in ninth grade, we should identify everybody's strengths and weaknesses. We send this message that a college application has to have no weaknesses, which is just ridiculous. We all have weaknesses. And I really wish we could all be more transparent about what our strengths and our weaknesses are. So for me in the eighth, ninth, 10th grade process, it's about being honest and saying, okay, I'm really good at math and I love math. I'm really not a great writer. I'm going to become a better writer. I'm going to work on being a better writer, but I'm going to play to my strengths. Because in life, a lot of the people that are successful and happy play to their strengths. And to me, that's the beginning of the process. So the first year or two years are about managing anxiety, helping people identify their strengths, helping people to sort of figure out who they are and who they want to be. And if you can do that in ninth and 10th grade, then the process evolves. I also agree 100% with you that everything should be front-loaded. It does not seem to be the way high schools in America do it. They want everything backloaded. They want everybody to take the SAT in April of um, 11th grade. They want you to take your APs and your SAT2s in June of 11th grade. They want you to retake a test in the fall of 12th grade. That makes absolutely no sense. For my, the kids I work with, I'm like, the earlier the better. And parents will say to me, well, aren't we lengthening the amount of time they're stressed? And I'm like, no, we're doing this stepwise. We're doing one step at a time. It also allows people to make mistakes because there's just not a lot of room in this process for mistakes, which is why it's so stressful. So letting someone take an SAT, let's say in December of 11th grade, right, um, gives them an entire year almost to retake it if they need to. Often they don't need to, but just knowing that you can retake it makes a difference. The other piece that I want to talk about a little bit is about identifying kids that do have performance anxiety or academic anxiety and how do we help them through this process because they're the ones that struggle the most. Those are the kids that I really want identified in 8th and ninth grade. I want in 8th and ninth grade as a parent and a teacher for you to know which kids are anxious test takers or which kids are just anxious about academic performance because I really believe we need to be working on that in 8th and ninth grade, not working on it, you know, four weeks before the SAT. I think that's a great point and um, important for students and parents to know that there are over 900 flexible or test optional schools in this country. And not everybody has to take an SAT or ACT or SAT subject test um, or APs. For students who really get anxious around test taking, they should go to fairtest.org and take a look at those schools. So many great schools that are test flexible. And because some parents out there 
we'll, we'll just say, you know, my child is just not a great test taker, never has been, really get, has a lot of anxiety around testing. You can take that completely out of the process by applying to those schools. I do think that academic performance is the more important piece. The day in and day out over four years, what you're doing in your classes is critical. That's like a bigger issue if you're having anxiety just getting through the day. Are you even at the right high school? Um, and that that's a good question. You know, you may not be at the right school if it's too competitive or you feel too much stress around the process. And I do see a lot of kids that are just not matched well with their high schools. I mean, we, we will move kids sometimes because they're just in the wrong place where they are not set up for success. I would love for schools to be thoughtful in helping kids play to their strengths. Not that you shouldn't take Spanish or that you shouldn't take calculus, but if you're terrible at a foreign language, is it true that you can't get into college if you don't have four years of it? Certain colleges, yes, it is true. But we'll have those students often take ASL, American Sign Language. If they're a good athlete or they're good with sports or physically, they can often do well in in American Sign Language outside of school. And they can also place out of a language by taking an SAT subject test in that language. And then they would double up on some other course. But many selective colleges, and this is the truth, so this is now on the college's side, are going to be requiring four years of foreign language. I mean, the five core subjects they're looking at, they're looking at English, math, history, a lab science, and a foreign language. So if you drop one of those things, it's always a little bit tricky and we have to figure out, okay, how can this student get into the schools of their choice but still show proficiency in certain areas? That's the way it's set up right now. What we try to do with students is in their applications to show off everything else about themselves that might make them stand out. I often get asked the questions about essays, you know, what should my child write about in their personal statement? And students will spend, you know, three months writing their personal statement, the 650-word essay, and they'll spend three minutes working on their supplements. Many selective colleges have not just the personal statement, but have many, many other essays, oftentimes very short. could be just a paragraph. It could be one line. It could be one-word answers. But you have to be just as thoughtful about those supplements as you do your personal statement. And your personal statement, should you should be writing about something that the college admissions office cannot learn from the rest of your application. That's tough. You know, you're going to have an activity list with all of your main core exciting activities that you're doing. That's going on the application. So what are you going to write about? The common application gives you many prompts to answer, so you can answer one of them, but it's a pretty open-ended question. This is where you really need to be extremely thoughtful because you can't write about everything in 650 words, but you have to sort of write about what makes you tick. If you have five minutes with the dean of admissions, what do you want to say to this person? If you, you know are the captain of the soccer team. You don't want to write about kicking the winning goal and about a soccer match. That's just going to be redundant and boring. So tell me something I don't know about you. That's a lot of what we help students think about. I had a student who was a horseback rider and the first essay draft that she turned into me, of course, was about horseback riding. It was a major eye roll because, okay, she had it on her activity list. There was an activity essay on the application about horseback riding. Her coach was writing a letter of recommendation. It was just too much. And um, and um, she was an A student, but she was getting a low B in um, AP biology. 
And it was interesting. And, and we had I had long talks about this, why this course was so difficult for her. It turns out she was a very religious girl, Catholic girl. And she said, you know, what I was learning in science was conflicting with what she was learning every week at her church. And that ended up being her college essay. And it was about her intellectual vitality and how she thought about this class versus her identity, her religious identity. And it was a super powerful essay. It was just brilliant. That made a great statement. A lot of kids wouldn't know to write on something like that. They would say, well, I've got to write on horseback riding because that's my main thing. No, you've got to think about all these other things about yourself. If you take your time early enough in that process with the essay writing, I think that will also take out the stress of the process. As you said, talk about your weaknesses, but how does that make you human and real? How do you jump off the page? Are you funny? If you're funny, show that you're funny. If you're really thoughtful about some subject or you're really interested in some subject not even taught in school, architecture and how you think about that and pursue that and maybe you've written a blog about it or something and you've done all this extra reading on it, show that. Show something that we don't know. If someone is working with you, I have no doubt you will uncover that interesting piece about them. But for most 12th graders, they're kind of on their own to come up with that sort of original piece of writing, which is so anxiety provoking. I'm amazed at how long it takes people to write these essays. They do all the work. They're so organized. And three months in, they still don't have this like 500 word essay. So what I would recommend to people at home is I would sit down with your grandmother or your aunt and I would turn on your phone and I would record it and I would have a conversation with them about just general things in your life. Like for instance, I saw a teenager in my office a few months ago and she was like hysterical and having panic attacks about the essay. And I'm like, I don't want to talk about the essay. Let's just talk. And I actually pushed record on my phone, which I do not usually do, but I did in this <laughs> case. Before she could tell me about whatever, how she was failing every class, which she wasn't, she managed to tell me about these great cupcakes that she was making and how she had done the special kind of strawberry or something for the cupcakes. 15 minutes later, we were still talking about her interest in baking and the banana bread she was making. And at the end of the session, I said, well, why don't you just write about cooking? It's not really all over your resume. There's nothing wrong with it. And you actually love it. And she ended up turning her essay into something about baking and cooking and something that was important to her. But you don't have to see a specialist or a psychiatrist to do this. I think this can actually be done at home with your mom at a table, just thinking about life, just talking about life, and then listen to the recording and see what comes up. Because I'm with you. I think the key to writing personal statements is finding something that's authentic to you, not something spectacular, not the president of the school or captain of the soccer team. It's that kind of interesting thing. Like I had trouble with biology or I actually really love to cook or any little things that have happened in your life. I usually do find that when kids get to the other end of the essay process, they feel very proud. So it is actually one part of the process I like because I think the process of trying to dig deep and write something about yourself, um, you know, and to try, yes, part of it's going to be fake. We all know it is. So let's not pretend that some of it's not going to be fake, but try to make it as authentic as possible. I think that makes kids really proud and begins to sort of make that process a bit more cohesive. What do you think about this whole ED process and now the ED2 process? Most of our students are applying with some kind of early strategy used with their list. Now, it depends on the actual school list and what each school offers. 
There are a lot of acronyms today that students and parents need to be aware of. There's ED1, ED2. In some cases, there's a hidden ED3. There's single choice early action, so SCEA. There's restrictive early action, REA. There's um, rolling admissions. There's early action as well. So there's so many different acronyms that they need to know and know how they work because you can't do them all. So for example, if you're applying SCEA, single choice early action, to let's say Yale, you cannot apply early decision to another school and you cannot apply early action to another private school, but you could apply early action to a public school, for example, Michigan, at the same time. If you're applying to um, Georgetown, for example, early action, you can apply to as many other early action schools as you want, which is non-binding and and you don't commit, but you can apply to an early decision school. So you need to know how this all works. As you asked, ED1, ED2, ED2, it is a binding commitment. So if you apply in the ED one round, either early decision or early action, and you don't get into those schools, there is an ED two round that some schools offer, not all schools, that is binding. It is you would commit to that school. So the difference between early decision in general, whether it's ED one, ED two, ED three, is you are committing to that school. If you get in, you can only apply to one of those schools at a time. Early action, you can often apply to many of those schools at the same time, and it's they're non-binding, so you don't have to commit. I'll give you an example of this, but as I, I worked with a student who loved Princeton and loved Georgetown pretty much the same, loved those two schools. She was an A-minus student, and we knew Princeton was a far, far reach, and you know their admit rate last year was 5.5%, so we know why. However, if she applied to Georgetown early action, she could also apply to Babson, Bentley, UVA, and actually a bunch of other schools early action. She ended up applying to five or six schools early action with Georgetown. And we used that strategy instead of just applying single choice early action to Princeton. And she got into four out of the five early action schools, including Georgetown, which was her top choice. That was a really smart strategy. And in fact, she got offered merit aid at both Babson and Bentley because the aid is given out in the early rounds. So by the regular round, there's not as much aid left. She didn't need financial aid, but she was such a strong student that she was offered that. She ended up choosing to go to Georgetown, and that was fine. But using strategy in the early process is so incredibly smart because you'll get those decisions back mid-December. You might not even have to send out applications to certain schools on your list, and you can shorten your list in that case if you already have some acceptances early. And once you have those acceptances, talking about your self-confidence, you know, you feel great, you've got some schools under your belt, you go into that winter break feeling good, you can actually take a break during winter break, and if you only applied early action, maybe you submit one or two regular decision applications, but you know that you have a place to go. And I think that's a very smart way of going about the process. Um, is using some kind of early strategy. So it's understanding your list and what all the possibilities are with that list. So sitting down with someone, whether it's your high school, college counselor, are you looking at the fine print, which you will have to look at on every single application before signing off on it, how to get in that way. So I think that that's, that's a great strategy to use to reduce anxiety. 
Well, I'm with you. I personally, if the college people are out there listening, think that all of these responses should come in in December and January. And the reason I think that's so important is it shortens the process, but also it gives you actual time to get ready for college because parents and kids spend so many years with this goal of getting into college that what I hear from the colleges and from the heads of counseling centers at colleges around the country is they're all very prepared to get into college and not super prepared to manage their anxiety once they get to college. So what I hope for people is that by the end of January, whether you're in or not, the application process is over because your first semester grades are submitted by the end of January. And then I want kids from February 1 to September 1 to really work on cultivating independence, managing test-taking anxiety, protecting sleep. And I want parents, especially parents who have been very involved and worried and on top of their kids over the last few years, I want them to back off. It's safe. You can let your kids make mistakes between January and September. They can get B's and C's if that's what they need to do. They can oversleep classes. They can suffer real consequences of their actions between January and September of senior year, because uh, going into freshman year, because this gives them real opportunity to build resilience, to develop self-regulation skills, and to, and to develop basic skills to take care of themselves. So when they get to college, they're not just academically ready, but they're ready in a social and emotional way. Thanks so much. Yeah, um, thank you so. so much. I feel like we could talk forever, but this oh, is such could. a great topic. I know. This has been a great discussion, you know, and good luck to everybody out there on, in this journey. Exactly. Good luck to you all. For conversations you can't ignore, come back every Monday and Thursday for new episodes. Subscribe now and never stop learning.